I'm Grant, an engineering and technology leader who will share the secrets of IT with you. Listen up, because we're about to get into it. Hey there. So today I want to talk about the difference between a bug and a feature, and then take the conversation into how you can prioritize what work you're doing in order to drive a project forward. If you've never worked on a massive project, that's okay. Uh, when you do work on a massive project, you've got to prioritize all sorts of different things in order to make sure that you're hitting the expected dates when you want this thing to go live. There are a lot of different reasons of why you will have a date on when you have to go live. Sometimes it's due to expectations from customers. Sometimes it is marketing materials. And then other times uh, it could be just a dependency that is outside of your control. Another system's going live on this day and they depend on you. So you have to go live on that day. So a ton of different factors there, but we'll talk about all of that and how you can prioritize your work to make sure all of that stuff kind of uh, sorts itself out at the end of your project. But first, Let's define what a bug is or a defect versus a feature. You may have heard uh, other podcasts here. Lex Friedman is one that I am thinking of off the top of my head. If you don't listen to him, you should. It's a really great podcast, but he'll sometimes say something to the effect of, oh, so you mean it's a bug, not a feature. And this is really the conversation that he's talking about when he makes that offhand comment. A bug is something that your application does that you didn't intend for it to do. Customers will be trying to do something with your product, it does something different, and you're like, oops, I didn't mean for it to do that. That is a classic definition of a bug or a defect. A feature, on the other hand, is the intended behavior of your application. You may be wondering why I feel the need to define these two categories of work, a, a bug versus a feature, until you release your own application into production, and a customer says, oh, Hey, I think there's a bug in your program. It does X, Y, Z. And then you're thinking to yourself, well, that's what it's supposed to do. So whether or not something is a feature or a bug really depends on who you're talking to. At the end of the day, it doesn't often matter whether you classify something quote unquote correctly, because as you can tell, it depends on who you talk to, whether something is a feature or a bug and how you classify it is really just kind of for your own metrics. There have been some times in my career, especially in financial services, where the way that you classify your work does matter for regulations because you're supposed to be releasing software with a certain quality standard. So if you are releasing bugs or defects into production, you have to properly classify those based on a scoring system to make sure that the quality of the applications you are pushing into production are high, uh, high enough for financial services regulations. That's not typically the standard in every company um, outside of financial services, and sometimes not even for every company in financial services. You have to be of a certain scale in order to be held under those regulations. But in general, it's a pretty gray area, so you can define uh, whether something is a feature or a bug and use those metrics for your own benefit to know if you are producing uh, terrible code and releasing that into production or if you are producing something that's high enough quality for yourself and your own team's standards. Now, a story that kind of goes along with this whole bug versus feature conversation was back when I worked at Southwest Airlines about 2012, 2013. You see, my team had been building this application for you know decades up to that point in time before I had joined, and we had found a bug in the user interface. When you would resize the window, you could lose complete and total visibility to some of the buttons. 
So if you were to like drag the right-hand corner, I think it was, towards the left, there was a sidebar on the left-hand side of the screen, and it was a percentage width of the overall window size. So as you resized and made the window smaller, that you know that 10% or whatever the sidebar's size was, it went from 100 pixels down to five pixels, and it would ultimately just disappear entirely, and you wouldn't be able to click important buttons to do your job in the user interface. So being the wonderful software engineers that uh, we were, being proactive to try and fix unintended behaviors like this, my team decided to write up a defect and fix that issue so that the sidebar with the buttons that would let the dispatchers do their job wouldn't disappear and they could always do their job. So the sidebar would remain a fixed size, uh, you know, a minimum fixed size. It would still be the 10% of the screen, but it would never go below, say, 20 pixels. So you could always read the labels on the buttons. So we do all this work, we get our application built and released into production, and as soon as it goes live, everybody starts complaining. Oh my goodness, you've busted my entire workflow grant. Your team is terrible. And I had to ask him, why? What happened? Uh, we built a whole bunch of great stuff for you in this release. We even fixed a defect that was in the user interface. Come to find out, that was actually the thing they were complaining about. So while I had been fixing a legitimate problem, a defect, what I found through that interaction is that the flight dispatchers would actually minimize the entire window to as small as it could be so that those labels were about one pixel in width. The flight dispatchers had been doing that job for such a long time they knew what all the buttons did. All they needed to do was arrange the windows on their screen in such an order that they could actually do their jobs efficiently between all of the different systems that these user interfaces connected. And so they would minimize the window and not take up any, any of the useful real estate on the screen with empty colored buttons. Like they didn't need to see the windows, they just needed the action there. One pixel was big enough for them to do that action and give them additional screen space to see things in other user interfaces and applications that they had used. So I didn't know they did that. Maybe I should have, but like that's a really weird way to use an application, isn't it? Uh, who minimizes a window down so that the buttons are one pixel in width? And so uh, me and my team being well-meaning, we had to undo that entire release take that, that work back to the way it was prior to the release and then push it all out again uh, during the downtime between 2 and 4 o'clock in the morning when we were allowed to release software there. It was just the most outrageous experience I've ever had at fixing a legitimate defect. So maybe, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't have classified that as a defect, but technically it was not behaving as a user interface should, even though that's the way the users had learned to work around the quirk of the application. And uh, it ended up being a feature at the end of the day, one might say. So I guess the lesson or the moral in that story is when you classify something as a defect and you're changing the interface that users use, make sure you understand how your users are actually using your application. They may be using it differently than you ever intended for them to use it, and you may be unaware. So it's important to go out there, talk with your users, kind of hover over their shoulder if you can, uh, which I could have in that situation, kind of see how they lay things out on their windows, what buttons do they click in which orders, what's their logical reasoning behind how they traverse through your application. There are actually some frameworks today that will help you build in the hooks into your application to get that data.
So if you can get a heat map of where the mouse is hovering on your user interface or a behavior flow chart, those things will be golden in being able to understand a little bit better about how your users use your application. But back to the point, bugs and features, they're two different things, but it's very dependent on context and your opinion. So this is not a, an argument you should get into with someone on your team or a leader in your company as to whether or not something is a defect or a bug. It can feel bad being a software engineer if someone says your code has a, a defect in it. Uh, sometimes you feel like you let people down, but try and fight those feelings because ultimately it doesn't matter. Your reputation isn't baked into your software, really. Everybody makes mistakes. And so it's best to get into the mindset of being excited or thrilled when somebody finds a defect in your code, because that means they cared enough to tell you about it. They didn't just let it sit out there for people to experience. And it's even better if they tell you about the code and it's not one of your end users or a customer. If somebody on your team, another engineer, or one of your quality assurance people find a defect, that's the best place to, to find it because that means that a user isn't going to find it. But always uncovering a defect, it's, it's a good thing, no matter what. It's always a good thing. One last thing before we move into the prioritization conversation is technical debt. Now, technical debt is kind of a category of its own. Sometimes it's a bug, sometimes it's a feature, but technical debt generally in my experience is referring to times when we make decisions to cut quality intentionally in the release of our application. Now, let me define that a little bit more clearly here. The word debt should really be a clue here as to how this thing fits into your program because debt is something where you've borrowed from your future in order to make a payment today on something. And generally in software engineering, what you're talking about there is we've cut some quality in order to hit a deadline that was given to us. We had no say in the matter, uh, but if we were to kind of build this one system integration a little less robustly, say maybe it doesn't retry uh, on a failure, but instead it just kind of reports the error and then dies, then it would have been a decision that we made where it's less robust than it ought to be. Things should retry. Um, but we decided not to do that because we didn't have time to build in that robustness. So we have accrued technical debt that we've decided we will get to that later after the release of the application because it's not critical that we get that done in this release of the application. There's a ton of different scenarios that... Um, you may accrue technical debt in. That example was just one that I kind of thought up off the top of my head because I've seen it done before. Uh, a lot of times the robustness of retry logic or failure logic uh, gets put off until after release because just dying, as long as it's kind of graceful, like that's sufficient. It does the job and then a user could uh, retry the activity that they were trying to accomplish later and the user actually behaves as your retry logic in some instances. But that would be an example of what technical debt is. You don't want technical debt. It's a symptom of trying to move faster than you're able to. If you are staffed properly, you're building things to be high quality, and you're working with the people who are trying to get your product released in order to make sure that the quality of your application is good enough, for your end users, then all of these things can be done, right? You can build a high quality application and hit a deadline as long as you're working with the powers that be in order to get that thing released. But, you know, it, it is completely outside of your control sometimes. 
an executive wants to hit a certain date, they've made a promise to a customer group, right? Sometimes you just get told when your deadlines are. It is a terrible model, but it is also the nature of reality sometimes. So that's why technical debt does accrue. Now, taking these categories of work and coming full circle here, how do you prioritize this work relative to each other? And how do you decide how long you're gonna spend working on each of these categories, right? If you have a lot of bugs in your code, you could devote 100% of your time to fixing those bugs and then just never release your application because you never build any features. So you can't just pile on to one of these categories. You have to do all of them in parallel all the time because they will constantly get added to. You will always add new bugs. You will constantly make decisions to uh, take on technical debt and then you'll always have new features that you have to, to add to your application. So you've got to do them all at the same time. So in general, what I found is a good uh, percentage breakdown is that the, your budget for doing technical debt and fixing bugs should be about 20% of your team's capacity. The rest of that should go into all of the features that you're building for your application to move the product forward. Of that 80%, if you're a DevOps team, you could budget some time in order to handle uh, operational issues. And again, that's dependent on your application and how many problems arise in production. So you may need a 10% budget for uh, doing your DevOps interactions. You may need a 50% budget if you've got a really terrible application that's going down all the time. Uh, so that's going to get dictated to you by the quality of your application. But in general, an 80-20 split for new feature work and um, your bug budget. We call it KLO, keep the lights on. Uh, your KLO budget would be about 20%. So that's the general breakdown of the percentage of time here. And this is where being agile really starts to shine. Because if you've got a backlog of work uh, where the work is clearly spelled out, then you can prioritize it. You can categorize it too if you really want to. And uh, I generally do, right? So I've got my big backlog of work and I've got the KLO items, the, the stuff that's like bugs that need to get fixed. Some of them are critical, some of them aren't critical. Some could, if they sat there for a year and never got fixed, most people may not even notice, but we know they're there. And so maybe someday we're gonna be a little lighter on work. Maybe we'll get to those bugs at that point in time. So this is the way that I usually prioritize these things. So from my backlog, I've got my KLO items and I've got my new features. In each of those different categories, I go through a modified Eisenhower matrix. As the name implies, President Dwight Eisenhower developed the concept behind the Eisenhower matrix. He used this four quadrant system to help him prioritize and deal with the high stakes issues he faced as a US Army general, then as an allied commander of NATO forces, and then eventually as the president of the United States. So it seemed to work for him, and uh, his urgent but important matrix didn't really do the job for me, but the, the four boxes still make sense, I just renamed them. So I've still got the four boxes, but instead of urgent and important, I call it urgent and difficult. So in the first quadrant, we've got things that are urgent and easy. These are the things that you should be taking on all the time if you can, because they're important to get done now and they're easy to do, so just do them. The second quadrant is urgent but hard. These are, are items that you may wanna take in, but you may not be able to. 
So this could be like a really big thing that you've got to deliver like now. Someone's screaming for this thing, uh, but it's really hard, right? It's going to take some time. So you want to take this quadrant and compare these items to the next one, which is the not urgent, but easy items. So something needs to be done now, but it's really hard. What's the trade-off for doing something that is not urgent, but easy? Think about it for a second. If something is urgent and very difficult, it may take you a long time to get that thing done. That's why it's difficult. Maybe you can build some goodwill by taking on some items that really aren't urgent, but they're easy to do. So instead of doing delivering nothing for an entire month, maybe you can pick up three little tiny items and make a little less progress on the thing that is super urgent, but show some good faith to the person you're delivering your software to that, look, I've done some stuff for you here. We've got these three other items. I know we didn't get the big, urgent, hard thing that you needed done, done, but we got some of these little items that were still important to you, but just not quite as important, right? So this is those are the two quadrants that you really want to think about. What are you prioritizing here and where? What's the story that you're going to tell to your stakeholders for this upcoming release? And the final quadrant is things that are not urgent, but are very difficult. So these are the items that you're probably not going to get to anytime soon because nobody's really beating down your door for them and they're really hard to do. So they just go to the bottom of your, your uh, backlog and you'll get to them eventually when the winds change. The important thing to keep in mind here as you're assessing all of the work in your backlog and plotting it on the Eisenhower matrix is that you may not have items for every single one of these quadrants and that's okay. Every single project is kind of its own thing. And oftentimes in a corporate world, you work on things for years at a time. Now you're delivering things rapidly, right? But you may work on the same team for five years. During those five years, you're going to have projects come and projects go. If you use the Eisenhower matrix example here that I'm, I'm laying out for you, then in some projects you'll have things for all four quadrants. On other projects, maybe you only have three quadrants or two. Um, but the whole point of the exercise here is to give you some sort of a gauge or methodology for you to plot your work and prioritize it relative to all of the other things that you have to work on. Now, this is not something that you will learn in an agile course. You may learn it in some agile courses, but it's not technically part of the framework at all. The way that you prioritize, this is really a product owner type of a conversation here. So you may have those in your team or at your office. You may not. Uh, the entire way that you prioritize things could be on your shoulder. And I'd actually encourage you, whether you're a developer or a leader, uh, like an, a manager or a director, or whether you are a product owner, every single person here who is associated with the software in some way should be thinking about these problems of prioritizing the work and delivering the most value that you can deliver as soon as humanly possible. So to recap on the Eisenhower matrix, do the urgent and easy things first. Try and figure out the right mix of urgent and hard things with not urgent and easy things, and then put all of the not urgent but hard things to the bottom of your priority list. And this should get you pretty far in the prioritization at the high level. When you start talking in an individual sprint, 
or how to prioritize individual work items themselves. I've got a whole different set of criteria that you could use that I'll probably talk about at some point in time, but this is the general way that you should be prioritizing bugs and features and technical debt and comparing it to your software release and trying to figure out how all of this stuff kind of fits together uh, in terms of the amount of time that you're spending on each of these categories of work and then how you're prioritizing them relative to one another. Because again, those are the two things that you've got to consider. The amount of bandwidth that you have, the time that you can devote to those categories of work, and you have to work on them all in parallel, and then how you're going to prioritize those things. When you prioritize things, always work from the top of your priority list down to the bottom. If you are, have your priorities laid out, one, two, three, four, five, and you choose to work on priorities one and four, why did you not just make priority four number two? Because that's what you're doing. So get very, very good at ruthlessly prioritizing things and then sticking to your priority list. That is the key here. That's what's important. So this will get you a far way um, in through the prioritization game, kind of help you get your head on straight when you're trying to think about how to deliver a project or a program at work. And lastly, I want to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I hope you learned something through my experience here. If you did, excellent. Uh, if you didn't or you got questions, then please don't be a stranger. Shoot me an email at hello at grantdryden.com or connect with me on LinkedIn. I would love to hear from you and uh, to see if there's any topics that are on the top of your mind that maybe I could share some insight into and help you find your way through IT. Thanks for listening. I will see you again next time. Thank you.